The reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to chapter 2, verse 3. God rests on the seventh day. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the word of the Lord. Damien, thank you. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Jeanette. Hello. Excuse us, isn't it? Shall we pray? Father, we thank you because we have encountered you already. We can feel your presence. And now as we come before your word, we want to do business with you. So would you anoint me to teach and would you give us receptive hearts, industrious minds. Amen. Great to see you. One of the problems with um, a sermon series on the, uh, the Ten Commandments is that it kind of um, takes ten weeks to get through, doesn't it? Um, there's certain points of God's top ten that uh, you might feel speak particularly incisively into your life in terms of where you're at. <coughs> if we're honest, though, uh, there are other parts uh, of this list that don't feel anywhere near as pertinent. We're, we're nearly there. We're working back from ten to one, and we're on uh, number four this moment, this, moment uh, this, this fourth commandment. It's in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. <coughs> On it you shall do no work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Some of the commandments in God's top ten are pretty 
pithy, aren't they? Unequivocal. I mean, there was no mistaking what the, the direction was. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. It seems to me that it becomes even more clearer and blatant when you hear it in the original Hebrew. Lo tirzach. Thou shalt not murder. Lo tinaf. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Lo tignof. Thou shalt not steal. Pretty clear, right? For the, for the first recipients of these commandments and for us sitting here thousands of years later, pretty, pretty clear, pretty direct. And as you contemplate each directive, it's also pretty obvious that you're not just looking at a list of not-to-dos, things you can't do. Think of think a, a list of prohibitive directives. It's pretty obvious when you unpack it that do not murder has a positive implication. Do not murder, so do promote life. What a time to think about that. Do not covet, so do cultivate a spirit of thankfulness. Do live with gratitude. Direct and decisive. But then we get to this fourth commandment. And you'll notice it is by a mile the longest commandment. Why? Because Jesus, uh, sorry, God wants to be particularly clear. <laughs> well, Jesus does as well. But God wants to be particularly clear uh, about what's involved here, who this is applying to. Everybody, sons and daughters, workers, visitors, even the animals. And also God wants to set out his reasons for this command uh, being given. But if I'm honest... And everything I say this morning is in love. This commandment worries me the most when I think about us. This is the one commandment I think the church today profoundly struggles with. Even disregards. I know a lot of brilliant, spirit-filled Christians who are deeply committed to their walk with Jesus and are deeply committed to their prayer life and their Bible study and, of course, corporate worship but somehow not the Sabbath. It's like we try and process this commandment by viewing it through some kind of 21st century lens, if you will. So we have our lives, our inevitably hectic schedules, and somehow this Sabbath thingy has to fit in with what is already established, inevitably there. It's like, do you remember those school benches? And those, those teachers, they were liars, that they said you could fit 30 kids on a bench? <laughs> Some teachers here, shame on you, because we all tried to fit on those flipping benches, which is fine unless you were the last kid in the line. And you had little or no chance. You, look, you looked at this space at the end of the bench and you couldn't even envisage one of your cheeks getting on there. But nonetheless, an order's an order, and so you try, don't you? Because I, I was naughty, I had to walk into assembly with the teacher. Again, teachers, shame on you. <laughs> for not spotting the, the kind of genius within the, the disruption. <laughs> so I would accompany the teacher in um, and then try and take a seat on the end of an already full bench. But defiantly, I would try and perch there for the entirety of the assembly. The headmaster was going on for an indeterminate amount of time. I don't know what the man was saying, but my thighs were killing me as I refused to concede defeat until eventually I would slide off the bench onto the floor, acknowledging that there was insufficient room for me to sit on the bench. 
And joking aside, I wonder if the Sabbath is anything like that in your life. Like the little kid trying to fit on an already full bench. During lockdown, you will have heard me assert during the uh, online sermons on more than one occasion that uh, during this terrible season, whilst we were stopped in our tracks, um, not a season that God created, but a season that he was definitely going to use, you would have heard me say that perhaps God is pressing a reset button right now. And certainly he did that in my life. I'm very much a work in progress, but I tell you, my addressing of and my approach to this commandment, to the Sabbath, uh, is completely different to what it was. And I can't take any credit for it uh, or point to some deep spiritual astuteness. What happened was remarkably unremarkable. When I stopped, as we all did, I suddenly realised that I could breathe. And that not being breathless was a good thing. I was able to look at my life, my schedule, my commitments and friends. It frankly looked ridiculous. And I could simply see that for me, so much of what was being packed in was about me being busy, maybe even important, certainly enjoying being in high demand and sought after. Now, that is not a comfortable thing for me to confess. But once that was acknowledged, the idea of going back to such a cluttered rhythm of life was unthinkable. Going back to the bench analogy, you know the little kid at the, at the back of the line trying to, trying to make it onto the bench? But in some respects, I simply reverse the order. And instead of being at the back of your queue, he's now at the first in the, in the line. So the Sabbath is the first thing on the bench. And so the rest of the stuff in my life has to fill up the bench after that. And if something falls off the end, well, frankly, that's because there's not enough room for it to be on my bench. The Sabbath, Shabbat in the original Hebrew, it literally means to desist from, to rest. To rest. It's as clear as everything else in God's top ten. Number ten, don't cover. Number nine, don't lie. Number eight, don't steal. Number seven, don't commit adultery. Number six, don't murder. Number five, honour your parents. Number four, rest. Rest. It's not an optional extra. We have to be clear about this commandment. And we have to be clear where we're, we're at with it. Because people sometimes mistakenly believe a well-meaning notion, but a flawed notion that all you have to do to rest is to stop work. And all you have to do to stop working is to not work. But it seems to me that the inventor of the Sabbath appeared to understand that it was a much more complicated undertaking for us. We cannot just downshift casually and easily. That's why perhaps the church historically made the Sabbath so exactingly intentional. Rules weren't there to torture the faithful. But the truth is, interrupting this ceaseless round of striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of the will and one that has to be bolstered by new and different habits as well as social sanction. What I mean is simply this. Our relationship to work is so seriously out of kilter as a society 
that anyone who thinks that you're just going to be able to get rested by simply knocking off whenever you feel tired is hopelessly naive. The great thing about the advances in technology, the internet, means that you, you can work anywhere. The sad reality is it means people are working everywhere. The ability to rest, deeply rest, is a life or death thing. No one can do without it. But it is not natural. It's not simple. It is absolutely difficult. And it takes an enormous amount of discipline and practice. The truth is, we've been viewing the Sabbath, the command to rest, through this 21st century lens which allows you to see the Sabbath as a worthwhile aspiration, a, a suggestion, if you will, that you're sincerely trying to fit into your life, or more to the point, your, your impressive schedule. But it isn't a suggestion. It, it's not a piece of advice. It's an ageless command from a God who made you, who loves you, who knows you, who wants you to live life in all its fullness and knows that the Sabbath is a necessary part of that. We just sang, you restore my soul. Your soul needs rest. This commandment is for you. And it's also for God. It's an act of worship. Shabbat is where we can be with him free from the hustle and bustle of the rat race. But right back in the beginning, the, the passage that Damo read for us, right back in, at the start of the story in Genesis, God, one person, the one person in the whole of history who does not need to stop and rest, stops and rests. At the end of the sixth day, very happy with what he's created, he stops and rests. But he doesn't need to. What's he doing? What's he up to? He's not tired. No, God did not need to stop and rest. But don't miss this. You needed God to stop and rest. You and me, we needed the Lord of all creation whose hands flung stars into space to stop and model Shabbat and rest. He calls us to stop and rest as an act of worship for his sake and of course for our sake. I mean, he makes Adam and Eve on day six, right? And what's the first thing he teaches them? They're created on day six. And what's the first thing in their diary on day seven? They probably didn't have diaries, but you know what I mean? What's the first thing that they got up to on day seven? Rest. That's the first thing they do. Rest and worship God on the one day of the week that God has made holy. Now, either God fluked that, or it was just the way things turned out. A lucky coincidence. Or it was God's intention that the whole of humanity starts with the Sabbath. Worship to him. Resting with him. The Sabbath is for God. It's an act of worship. The Sabbath is for you. It's where we find rest. As I mentioned, uh, lockdown served to hugely transform how I think about and implement the Sabbath in my own personal life. This is not to say I've nailed it, I'm perfect and I've got it all sorted, but just taking the Sabbath more seriously has been transformational for me. I'm sometimes very busy, 
but I am not hurried. It struck me that in Jesus there's this incredible example to follow. You might suggest as a Christian that should be a given, but I'm not always the quickest on the uptake. But when I, can, when I think about Jesus, when I think about this commandment and I think about Jesus and those crazy three years of this unrelenting ministry, he was very often busy. But you cannot show me a single instance within the Bible where Jesus is hurried. And you can say, oh, that's, that's semantics, you're playing with words. Busy, hurried, it's the same thing, isn't it? No, no. There is all the difference in the world between being busy and being hurried. Being busy is an outward condition, a condition of the body. It happens when we've got a lot of things to do. You could say that busyness is, to an extent, inevitable in our culture. I've just been through a really busy couple of months. That happens. But there are limits to how much busyness we can tolerate. So we wisely find ways to slow down when we can. Maybe take a holiday, read a book. If you're like me, you can just veg out in front of a TV for about four days. Meet friends. We punctuate our busyness with the Sabbath. By itself, busyness is not fatal. That said, whilst being busy is an outward condition, being hurried is an inner condition. It's a condition of the soul. It means to be so preoccupied with myself and what's going on in my life that I'm unable to be fully present with myself, let alone other people, let alone God. I'm simply unable to occupy this present moment. The problem with viewing this fourth commandment through this 21st century lens that I keep banging on about is that this lens wants to present a certain picture of your life, a view that this pressured existence is just the way it is. Salve, in fact, it's a good thing. It's a measure of how important and how much you've achieved. And so then the Sabbath, with that perspective, keeps getting moved further and further down your to-do list, ensuring that we rarely or perhaps never quite get to it. The reality is that busyness can and will migrate to hurried when you allow your schedule to squeeze God off the end of your bench. I cannot live in the kingdom of God with a hurried soul. You cannot live in the kingdom of God with a hurried soul. You cannot rest in God with a hurried soul. Jesus was busy. Everybody wanted a part of Jesus. But he was never hurried. Just think about how he did life. He prayed. Think about the things that were important to him. He prayed. He, he kept this lifeline between himself and his father open. He had a close circle of friends, of course. Had these 12 disciples that he did his life, did ministry with. I think people often underestimate the value of friendships in Jesus' life. He was committed to regular corporate worship at the synagogue. Though the leaders of the synagogue often drove him to distraction. But he knew that it was an imperative that he regularly entered his father's house and worshipped and encountered God with other believers. He filled his mind with scripture. He knew intimately the word of God. Obviously, it sustained him and it was often used in his ministry. 
He enjoyed God's creation. It's up in the mountains or down by the, the water. Obviously, his ministry was nomadic. He welcomed little children and he hugged them and he blessed them and he had fun. He made sure he was around fun to that end. He, he hung around and even had parties with non-religious people. And that's why the, the religious hierarchy hated him. They couldn't stand the fact that he hung around with sinners. It drove them to distraction. That's why in, in Luke chapter 15 they were raging because they were convinced by this point in Jesus' ministry that this man Jesus couldn't possibly have come from God because he does what no good upright religious person would ever do. He hangs around with sinners and even eats with them. It's unthinkable. And so Jesus, by way of a response, offers those famous three parables about the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son. But still the religious hierarchy couldn't fathom what Jesus was up to. When you look at his life, you will see that Jesus engaged in certain practices, some more surprising and, and less obvious than others, but activities that allowed God's grace to keep replenishing his spirit. But crucially, Jesus repeatedly spent time away from the crowds, his team of disciples. You know, he gets in the boat and he goes over to the other side, away from the pressures of this ministry that was literally going to change the world. And he rested. It's clear that he understood that his soul needed to be rested if he was to pull this off. So he would Shabbat, be with him and his father. So often when we, we think of a Sabbath, where we step away and rest and do things differently, too often, and maybe the church is at fault historically here, but too often people are, are disinclined to engage with this uh, commandment because they have this distorted notion that it basically involves joyless spiritual practices that are nothing more than obligations. And those obligations will drain them. Sometimes I, I might need to engage in a practice like giving generously or sacrificially or serving humbly, which my sinful soul does not like and wants to resist. But generally, I need to engage in practices that connect me to God's energy and his grace and his love and his joy. That's how I Shabbat. That's how I rest. You know, because of where we live, it might be that uh, you enjoy our wonderful beaches and you Shabbat by going down to the water or up into the Purbex or out into the Dorset countryside or listen to some incredible music. Or just hang out with some great life-giving friends. Or take a walk with your family. How many, of, how many of us have rediscovered in lockdown the joys of taking a simple walk with your family? And just, I mean, if you take our, our eldest, George, he, he'll show you the skill of saying nothing for about an hour, non-stop. But it was beautiful. It is beautiful. The point is that you do all of these things with Jesus and certainly not necessarily on a Sunday. The test of a sustaining spiritual principle, something that you might do in Shabbat, is does it fill you with grace and peace for life? Are you refueled? 
What's been really challenging in my own life is that as society has attempted to return to normality of, after these last couple of years, it's been a real challenge how strongly I felt the pull to simply return to how things were. That breathless rat race that was consuming me, the unsustainable working practices that were simply preventing me from being the husband I needed to be, the father I should be, the friend, the teacher, the musician I needed to be. The disciple I needed to be. I need to have spiritual discipline to make sure that I'm keeping the main thing, the main thing in my life. Because friends, if God has pressed a reset button, I cannot afford to discard it. Right? If God has pressed a reset button, don't miss it. Now let me be absolutely clear. We have some incredibly capable and gifted people at SML. It's a brilliant collection of people. A a collection of people who absolutely, by virtue of your capability, your capacity, your intellect, your integrity, you will get great jobs. Of course you will. I'm really thrilled to see, it was quite a few months ago now, that a great member of our church family is, is listed as one of the most significant individuals within education. I was so proud of him and so proud of our church family. Of course I want the, the most influential people to be Christians. Of course I want doctors and medical practitioners to be Christians, community leaders, business leaders, senior members of the education community community to be Christians. You'll do it better than anyone. But friends, at the same time, don't dress, dress this up. If you know that you're looking at life, assessing your life through a lens that's been provided by this world with all its godless, self-serving values, then please don't be hi- hide behind the, the excesses that such a distorted perspective will offer you. Don't do that. That's spiritually fatal. We need to consider how we are and where we are only from a kingdom perspective. We need to consider how we are and where we are only from a kingdom perspective. To to continue the metaphor, you'll know if you've got the right lens in your hands as you look at your life. Because your routine, when you look at it, you'll see an unmistakable need for you to be with God. Just you and God. To Shabbat. And friends, if you don't see that, then you're holding the wrong lens. You know, um, when I... uh, um, Went to do, to change my career, went into music. I'd already got a degree, so I had to, um, had to pay for um, my, my music degree. Do you remember those days when we got pay, degrees paid for? So, um, so uh, I funded my degree by playing and coaching um, cricket. And there was one occasion when England were due to play South Africa at the Oval. And I was... Um, sent to be what's called a net bowler. So a few days before the test match, the, both teams were practising their cricket nets and they get um, people like me to, to bowl at, at their batsmen and um, it's a great experience. Um, 
But I, you know, without being arrogant, I need to tell you that I was obviously quite good to be asked to go and bowl at um, you know these international players, <laughs> um, but not good enough to be in the team. But um, so I'm bowling to these England batsmen, and in the next net was the South African team, and my hero, uh, the great Alan Donald, the fastest um, guy outside of the West Indies, who was bowling in. The, over 90 miles an hour regularly. He was bowling in the next net, and we'd been bowling for a, about half an hour, and I was bowling to the England guys. And the, I managed at one point to, to literally contrive this situation where we, we ran in together. And because I just was intrigued to see what the difference between us was. Now, I, I was decent, right? Obviously, he's like probably one of the best in the world. And he was just gently going through the motions, and I was bending my back and trying to bowl. But I just wanted to see what the difference between us was. And so I made sure we ran up literally at the same time. And I bowled and I really let it go. And then I heard, I heard the batsman that was receiving his ball hit the bat ball and then me. There was a distinct difference. As much as I tried to dress it up, there was a difference. Well, I'm walking back to my mark to bowl uh, again. And the South African coach, there's a guy called Bob Warmer, who was probably the best cricket coach there's ever been, transformed cricket coaching, like the Alex Ferguson of, uh, of, of cricket. And uh, he saw me and uh, he said, you're wondering um, what he did that you didn't. And that is literally what I was thinking. And he reached down into this cool box and he put, picked up one of those isotonic drinks, like Lucasade or whatever it is, you know, and, and he threw me this drink and I caught it. And he said... The problem isn't, it isn't what he's doing and you're not doing. The problem is all the rubbish you're doing that he's not doing. I thought, Bleh. no, I didn't. <laughs> With all due respect, Bob, no. <laughs> and then I, I thought about what he'd said. See, I, I ran in, to the, tried to get to the crease and... Alan Donald just ran in like a gazelle. And by the time he, I got to this very awkward you know, situation of bowling, it's quite complicated action, uh, and I noticed I got up there and tried to smash it down as fast as I could, and Alan Donald just never went off straight and just effortlessly bowled this ball and didn't get in his own way. And, you know, for years, I've told that story because it's a great story to tell to cricketers you know, and sports fans who would know Alan Donald and, and the great Bob Warmer. But I just saw it, saw it as a, another story to add to stories I would regale when anyone would listen. I never stopped to think in that moment, God, not just Bob Warmer, was pointing out something profoundly life-giving to me. If only I'd stopped for a second for the penny to drop. That in my desperation to... To, to, to achieve something. I was getting me, my own hurriedness was getting in the way of achieving what I might achieve. And as we finish, friends, you can leave a talk like this, having tried to engage and listen to what's being said and process sincerely the implications of this commandment and just feel crushed feel defeated and a failure. Feel condemned because you think about this command that you sincerely want to uphold and that you hold it against your life and you cannot see how things can change. So you don't see how this could possibly work for you. 
And so you walk away feeling defeated and condemned. Well, let me say just two things as I come into land that are absolutely critical here. Firstly, as you think about this, be kind to yourself. Be gentle with yourself. The devil wants you to look at this commandment with trepidation, with an already established sense of defeat, of failure, so that you'll just walk away from it and nothing will change. But let me give you some great theological advice. If, the, if you know the devil wants you to do something, it's a really good idea to do the opposite. So be gentle with yourself, because when you are gentle with yourself, then you'll be able to be honest in terms of where you're at. And if things have to change, I know it's just not as simple as putting the Sabbath down on your bench first before anything else. But seriously, if you feel like your whole life is taken up with your job or your children, then you have to talk to people in your life to to share those challenges better. For example, when I talked to Claire about this, it was pretty obvious that the upshot is that Claire had to do more around the house. No, I, I had to help more around the house. Claire's got a really busy job, incredibly challenging workload. And Claire absolutely has an unbelievable capacity to work. Far exceeds mine, but so what? It doesn't change the fact that the commandment to rest lies on her life. You may well have to be ruthless in getting rid of some stuff that is just in between you and Shabbat. You and rest. You and God. You restore my soul. The soul craves rest. It's true that our wills sometimes rejoice in striving. You know, our bodies are made to at least sometimes know the exhilaration of a tremendous challenge. You run a big department, you run a big church, you you run a big school, you run a big business, that's fantastic. And it's really exhilarating when the stakes are high and the challenge is considerable, even when you're tired, great. But friends, don't dress it up. And here's where I'll finish this morning. The soul craves rest. Your soul craves the Sabbath. Because the truth about your soul is this. Your soul only knows borrowed strength. Your soul only knows borrowed strength. That is how it is designed. Just like a great oak tree rests in the soil, so too the soul was made to rest in God. Taking the Sabbath seriously will change everything for you. Amen. Oh,